Part One, Section Sixteen of the Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy, Section Sixteen. If to the boy that birthday was all bewildered disillusionment to anna it was verily slow torture she found no relief in thinking that there were things in life other than love but next morning brought readjustment a sense of yesterday's extravagance a renewal of hope impossible surely that in one short fortnight she had lost what she had made so sure of she had only to be resolute only to grasp firmly what was hers after all these empty years, was she not to have her hour? To sit still meekly and see it snatched from her by a slip of a soft girl? A thousand times no. And she watched her chance. She saw him about noon sally forth towards the river with his rod. She had to wait a little, for Gordy and his bailiff were down there by the tennis lawn but they soon moved on. She ran out then to the park gate. Once through that, she felt safe. Her husband, she knew, was working in his room. The girl somewhere invisible. The old governess, still at her housekeeping. Mrs. Doon writing letters. She felt full of hope and courage. This old wild tangle of a park, that she had not yet seen was beautiful a true trysting place for fauns and nymphs with its mossy trees and boulders and the high bracken she kept along under the wall in the direction of the river but came to no gate and began to be afraid that she was going wrong she could hear the river on the other side and look for some place where she could climb and see exactly where she was. An old ash tree tempted her. Scrambling up into its fork, she could just see over. There was the little river within twenty yards, its clear, dark water running between thick foliage. On its bank lay a huge stone balanced on another stone, still more huge and with his back to this stone stood the boy, his rod leaning beside him, and there on the ground, her arms resting on her knees, her chin on her hands, that girl sat looking up. How eager his eyes now! How different from the brooding eyes of yesterday! So, you see, that was all. You might forgive me, Sylvia and to Anna it seemed verily as if those two young faces formed suddenly but one, the face of youth. If she had stayed there looking for all time, she could not have had graven on her heart a vision more indelible, vision of spring, of all that was gone from her forever. She shrank back out of the fork of the old ash tree, and like a stricken beast, went hurrying, stumbling away amongst the stones and bracken. 
she ran thus perhaps a quarter of a mile then threw up her arms fell down amongst the fern and lay there on her face at first her heart hurt her so that she felt nothing but that physical pain if she could have died but she knew it was nothing but breathlessness it left her and that which took its place she tried to drive away by pressing her breast against the ground by clutching the stalks of the bracken an ache an emptiness too dreadful youth to youth he was gone from her and she was alone again she did not cry what good in crying but gusts of shame kept sweeping through her shame and rage so this was all she was worth the sun struck hot on her back in that lair of tangled fern where she had fallen she felt faint and sick she had not known till now quite what this passion for the boy had meant to her how much of her very belief in herself was bound up with it how much clinging to her own youth what bitterness one soft slip of a white girl one young thing and she had become as nothing what was that true could she not even now wrench him back to her with a passion that this child knew nothing of surely oh surely let him but once taste the rapture she could give him and at that thought she ceased clutching at the bracken stalks lying as still as the very stones around her could she not might she not even now and all feeling except just a sort of quivering deserted her as if she had fallen into a trance why spare this girl why falter she was first he had been hers out there and she still had the power to draw him at dinner the first evening she had dragged his gaze to her away from that girl away from youth as a magnet draws steel she could still bind him with chains that for a little while at all events he would not want to break bind him hateful word take him hankering after what she could not give him youth white innocence spring it would be infamous infamous she sprang up from the fern and ran along the hillside not looking where she went stumbling among the tangled growth in and out of the boulders till she once more sank breathless onto a stone it was bare of trees just there and she could see across the river valley the high larch crowned tor on the far side the sky was clear the sun bright a hawk was wheeling over that hill far up very near the blue infamous she could not do that could not drug him drag him to her by his senses by all that was least high in him when she wished for him all the finest things that life could give as if she had been his mother she could not it would be wicked in that moment of intense spiritual agony these two down there in the sun 
by the grey stone and the dark water, seemed guarded from her, protected. The girl's white flower face trembling up, the boy's gaze leaping down. Strange that a heart which felt that could hate at the same moment that flower face and burn to kill with kisses that eagerness in the boy's eyes. The storm in her slowly passed, and she prayed just to feel nothing. It was natural that she should lose her hour, natural that her thirst should go unslaked, and her passion never bloom. Natural that youth should go to youth, this boy to his own kind, by the law of love. The breeze blowing down the valley fanned her cheeks and brought her a faint sensation of relief. Nobility. Was it just a word? Or did those that gave up happiness feel noble? She wandered for a long time in the park. Not till late afternoon did she again pass out by the gate, through which she had entered, full of hope. She met no one before she reached her room, and there, to be safe, took refuge in her bed. She dreaded only lest the feeling of utter weariness should leave her. She wanted no vigor of mind or body till she was away from here. She meant neither to eat nor drink, only to sleep, if she could. Tomorrow, if there were any early train, she could be gone before she need see anyone. Her husband must arrange. As to what he would think, and she could say, time enough to decide that. And what did it matter? The one vital thing now was not to see the boy, for she could not again go through the hours of struggle like those. She rang the bell and sent the startled maid with a message to her husband, and while she waited for him to come, her pride began revolting. She must not let him see. That would be horrible. And slipping out of bed, she got a handkerchief and the eau de cologne flask and bandaged her forehead. He came almost instantly, entering in his quick noiseless way, and stood looking at her. He did not ask what was the matter, but simply waited. And never before had she realized so completely how he began, as it were, where she left off. Began on a plane from which instinct and feeling were as carefully ruled out as though they had been blasphemous. She summoned up her courage and said, I went into the park. The sun must have been too hot. I should like to go home tomorrow, if you don't mind. I can't bear not feeling well in other people's houses. She was conscious of a smile flickering over his face, and then it grew grave. Ah, he said, yes. The sun, a touch of that will last some days. Will you be fit to travel, though? She had a sudden conviction that he knew all about it, but that sense to know all about it was to feel himself ridiculous. He had the power of making himself believe that he knew nothing. Was this fine of him, or was it hateful? She closed her eyes and said, My head is bad, but I shall be able. Only I don't want a fuss made. Can we go by a train before they're down? She heard him say, yes, that will have its advantages. 
There was not the faintest sound now, but of course he was still there. In that dumb, motionless presence was all her future. Yes, that would be her future, a thing without feeling and without motion. A fearful curiosity came on her to look at it. She opened her gaze. He was still standing, just as he had been, his eyes fixed on her. But one hand on the edge of his coat pocket, out of the picture, as it were, was nervously closing and unclosing. And suddenly she felt pity, not for her future, which must be like that, but for him. How dreadful to have grown so that all emotion was exiled. How dreadful. And she said gently, I'm sorry, Harold, as if he had heard something strange and startling. His eyes dilated in a curious way. He buried that nervous hand in his pocket, turned and went out. End of section 16. Recording by John Brandon.